Our Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word. We thank You, our Father, that it is a faithful Word, a true Word, a compelling Word. It is not merely compelling in that it interests us, but it is compelling in that it commands us. And not only does it command us, but in this Word is also life that empowers us. So this Word is a means by which we know what to do and where to go and whom to follow, and it is a Word that enables us through the Spirit of God that resides within us to do that which it calls us to do. And Father, as we open this book and as we look at these verses, would you, would you transform us? And Father, many of us this morning just need confidence in you, and would you build that confidence in us? And having confidence in you, might we also then be desirous of living for you, compelled to live for you, enabled to live for you? Father, this this passage is transformative. Would it change us this morning? We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. Columnist Sidney Harris has rightly summarized the feelings of many of us when he wrote a number of years ago, Our dilemma is that we hate change and love it at the same time. What we really want is for things to remain the same, but get better. Amen? Amen. At least there's two of you that agree with me. However, a little reflection will tell us that not only do we need change, but change, as hard as it is for some of us, and I'm at the head of that list, I'm the captain of that team, the president of the club, change is also beneficial to us. Consider, for instance, what... What life was like in the past in comparison to what we have today. And I'm not talking about the distant past, like the time of Moses or, or the time of the Greek Empire or of the Roman Empire. I'm, I'm just talking about the somewhat recent past, even, even just a hundred years ago in America. A hundred years ago, the average income for a family was $800 a year. Today, a little over $26,500 a year. Life expectancy, a hundred years ago in America, I thought it would be relatively similar today. Ah, not quite so fast. Life expectancy a hundred years ago was 52 and two-thirds years, which makes me a dead man for several years now already. A life expectancy today, over 78 years, more than 50% more than 100 years ago. 100 years ago, school-aged children who were actually in school, 59%. Today, 96.5%. High school graduates 100 years ago, 12.8% of the population. Today, 85.4% of the population. A hundred years ago, 2.3% of the population had a bachelor's degree. Today, 28.2%. Let's talk about technology. A hundred years ago, the buzz 
around America was the all-purpose zipper. Now, I like zippers. I use zippers. But I'll take my iPhone 10, please. Actually, I don't have an iPhone 10, but if you want to contribute, I'd be happy to take it. The buzzword similarly in technology a hundred years ago was Henry Ford's new assembly line. Today we're not talking about an assembly line to make automobiles. We're talking about an assembly line at Amazon that can get you your package within six hours of having clicked a yes, that's what I want if you live in the right location. And buying your groceries online. Seriously? The most powerful companies a hundred years ago, GE, Hudson Motor Company, that's been gone for a while, Dutch Boy Paint, Campbell Soup. Today, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Walmart, ExxonMobil, and still holding strong after 100 years, GE. Aren't you glad some things have changed? And as difficult as some change is, and as significant as other change is, the changes that are produced in the believer in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit are far more significant and far more powerful and far more impactful. It is that very truth that Paul is focusing his attention on in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 tells us about the working of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer and the effect of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer and how that working of the Spirit of God produces assurance in the believer. Yes, I really am His because I have this working of the Spirit of God within me. And as we look this morning really at a section that begins in a very significant way to explain what the Spirit of God is doing in believers, if, as we look at these verses, verses 5 through 8, what we're going to find is that when the Spirit of God saves one, He is eternally changed from the inside out. When the Spirit of God comes and applies the blood of Christ to a believer, that person is radically changed... And the change is not something just superficial externally, but it is something internal that works out from that internal transformation. I find what Ray Ortland has written in his helpful book, Supernatural Living for Natural People, uh, I find what he has said to be very compelling and helpful and hopeful. He writes this, When God's grace opens a window into the sin-darkened prison of your soul. A shaft of pure light falls on your uplifted face. You see everything in a new way, and you can never be the same again. Before God came, you you just tried to make the best of your prison, pretty much the, the way everyone else does. You bought your pleasures there. You built your life there. You even cultivated your religion there. But when the life of God enters your soul through the Holy Spirit, you come to realize that there is more for you than anything this world can offer. Your soul opens up to a whole new world. This is this is the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. And and in these verses, verses 5 through 8, Paul is going to identify four ways that the Spirit of God changes the individual who is saved by that Spirit through Jesus Christ. Four, four manners in which the Spirit of God changes and transforms us. Four acts 
of the Spirit of God to change us when we are in Jesus Christ. Again, when the Spirit of God saves someone, he is entirely changed from the inside out. Now, notice verse Excuse me, notice verse 5. He begins verse 5 with, with a connective word for, for those who are according to the flesh. And what he is connecting is a thought in verse 5 to the preceding thought in verse 4. And in verse 4 he has said that a believer in Jesus Christ can now, because of the Spirit of God living within him, can fulfill the law of God. We, not perfectly, not completely, but there are things that we can do to demonstrate that we are fulfilling the law of God. We call this sanctification. We can be sanctified. And and how is it that we are sanctified? He says, because or for, here he gives a reason, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. In other words, we are sanctified by the working of the Spirit of God within us. And what... What the Apostle Paul particularly notes in these verses then are four ways or four manifestations of the Spirit of God and how He changes us from the inside out. And the first thing he notes for us is in verse 5. The first act of transformation, and that is, if you're following along your outline, this is number one, we have a new mindset. We have a new mindset. And we need a new mindset, Paul says, because we were controlled by the flesh. We didn't used to have the mindset of the Spirit. We used to have the mindset of the Spirit. Notice what he says. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So before we came to trust in Christ, he says we were according to the flesh. Now Paul uses this word flesh um, in a number of particular ways. In fact, as you look at the word flesh in the New Testament, Paul Paul's use of that word flesh accounts for about three quarters of, of all the uses in the New Testament. So if we look at how Paul uses it, we'll probably have a pretty good sense of, of what it means in the rest of the New Testament as well. And he uses it at times, first of all, to refer to that stuff, that material that covers our skin, or excuse me, that covers our bones and our muscular structure, our skin. And so he calls that our flesh. But, but sometimes he goes beyond just the skin, and he's talking about our entire human body. So, so it's our body, not just the skin, but it is the totality of our physical bodies. Or thirdly, sometimes he uses it not to refer to our human body per se, but but our entire human existence, so our entire human life. We we are human beings in general, and he uses the word flesh to, to denote our humanity. Fourthly, sometimes he uses the word flesh to denote not just our human condition, but our human condition in contrast to God. So it is his way to say we are of flesh, or humanity, and we are not God. We're in contrast, or in, in contradiction to God. We're in contrast to God. He is deity, and we are flesh, and we are not God. We are distinct from him. We're different from him. And then fifthly, he sometimes uses this word flesh to denote our fallenness. Not just, not just that we are different from God, 
But he denotes, uses the word flesh to denote that we are opposed to God. We don't want God. We don't desire God. We act against God. And it's those last two meanings that Paul particularly is emphasizing in Romans 7 and 8. He's denoting the fact that, that we have flesh, and in our fleshliness we're not only humanity, but we're not God. And, and in our not being God, we are also opposed to Him. We hate Him, and, and we, love, um, we love our fleshly desires. It is, Paul says, um, the one who is still unredeemed. This is, this is the, the primary use that Paul uses this word in Romans chapter 8. It's, it's the one who is unredeemed. It is the one who is still in Adam. He, he still has the power of the Adamic humanity in his body being worked out through his body. It, what's interesting to note is that, that in the scriptures, it denotes that, that one day our bodies will be redeemed. In fact, just look down to verse 23, the same chapter, Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, not only this, he says, but we also ourselves having the first fruits of our spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's coming a time when our bodies will be redeemed, our bodies will be restored. It's, it's as if uh, Paul is saying there was something that happened in the fall to our bodies and our bodies were corrupted, but not corrupted irredeemably. There's a way in which God can yet redeem our bodies. And yet the flesh is not thought of in the same way. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh... Your flesh, not your body, but that power that works the Adamic nature through you, that power will not be redeemed. As one theologian says, the flesh is earthbound. The flesh will be overcome. The flesh will be conquered. The flesh will be defeated. But it is irredeemable. There is nothing about it that will be redeemed. And then notice that Paul says that these people who are according to the flesh, they're unsaved people. They have not been saved by Christ. They do not have the Spirit of God residing within them. They function in a particular way. Notice he says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That is, they think about the flesh, they meditate on the flesh, they desire after the things of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are their longings. They're bent. The direction in which they go is always towards the flesh and the things that come from Adam and sin. Their, their world view is the flesh. They look at everything through the lens of the flesh. Nothing in this world exists except they think about it in fleshly terms. The flesh is entirely their orientation. And notice that Paul does not say those who think fleshly um, or those who are, are fleshly um, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but he says they, they set their minds on the things of the flesh because they are fleshly. I think that came out a little bit confusing. Let me try again. 
their fleshly thinking is not the product of their flesh. Their fleshly thinking is, is because of their inherent orientation. This is their nature. And because it is their nature, they can do nothing else. This is, this is in a sense what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We read this earlier. Notice he says in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised. He can't understand the things of God because he doesn't have the Spirit of God within him to instruct him, to teach him. That's the fleshly man. It is his nature to not look at anything in a spiritual, God-oriented, God-centered way because he doesn't have the Spirit of God within him to help him think that way. And this is simply to say that their minds are completely degraded, incapable of thinking anything right or doing anything righteous or having any righteous thoughts at all. They don't exist. And, and Paul will affirm this even in, in Ephesians chapter 4. He says there uh, that the Gentiles walk, he says, in the futility of their mind. They're darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is within them, because of their hardness of heart and having become callous. That Their minds no longer work. They're dark in their understanding. They're ignorant, hard-hearted, and callous. Why? Because they're living out of the flesh. They're only producing that which the flesh can produce. And what does that fleshly living look like? Well, there's, there's really just two primary um, manifestations of what fleshly living looks like. It manifests itself in indulgent and licentious and overtly rebellious living. And so we see this in, in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul already has talked about the mind being broken and the mind not working and the mind not functioning. And so he says, having become callous, they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. So if there's impurity, they're trying it. They're pursuing it. All kinds of impurity, that's what they do. And they do it, he says, verse 19, with greediness. They continue to pursue it. Why do they, why do they continue to pursue it? Why do they continue to pursue drunkenness when they wake up with a hangover the next day and their body is hurting and their body is aching and their wallet is empty? Why do they do it again the same night? In a vain attempt to find satisfaction in something apart from God. And they, they do it over and over and over and over again with greediness. And because their minds no longer work, they, they, they're no longer able to think what is the truth. So fleshly living looks like overt, rebellious, licentious living. This is the stuff that we see on immoral web pages. This is what we see in almost all entertainment, if you could call it entertainment, that's produced in our culture. It's, it's seen in the drunkenness of college students and the adultery of, of middle-aged men and in the rebellion of children. It, it just pervades our culture. But there's another kind of a manifestation of fleshly living that looks moral. 
It's self-righteous. And it is not overt rebellious living, but it is subtle rebellious living. It's the kind of rebellious living that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2 when he addresses the Jews who after, after Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1 that the Gentiles are under the wrath of God because of their rebellion against him and, and perhaps the Jews who were reading that would have said, that's great, that's right, you tell them Paul that the Gentiles and the unregenerate, they're, they're deserving of the wrath of God, but we're Jews and we're okay because of our Jewishness. And so Paul says to them in chapter 2, verse 3, But do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and you do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, there, there are those who, who think, Well, I can do this and I can engage in this because I, I have a lineage and I have a heritage and I have a right to engage in this kind of sin. And God won't care. God won't pass His judgment on me. These are people who purport to be moral or self-righteous. They attempt to do good things without the power of God. And friends, that is a rebel. And they are also living out a fleshly life. It is just as much condemnation to him and destruction to him as the blatant sin of a rebellious idolater. Listen, good things are not good things in God's eyes, unless they are done from the power of God's Spirit. And we tend to look and say, well, he's moral, he's okay, no friend. Good things are not good things unless they are done from the power of God's Spirit. And this is, this is what we see in way too many churches. People who are purporting to do good things, people who are attempting to be good without God. And that is just as fleshly as the drunk at the college fraternity party. Neither one believes he needs God. That's fleshly thinking. And, and that's the very thing that God changes. Notice the middle of verse 2. We were controlled by the flesh. We were under its authority. We were under its power. But now he says, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit... We were under the flesh and now we are controlled by the Spirit. Now we are changed. God has come in and given us a new mindset we are, where we are controlled by the Spirit. And Paul begins this thought by saying in verse 5, But don't you love when God interjects Himself in Scripture and says, This is the way life is going, but God... Oh, friend, that's, that's where we live. That's where our hope is. That's only where our hope is, where God intercedes and God interjects and God does something so that life is changed. And, and he says in verse 5, But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, what changed? What did God do? What, what did God do? When Paul says, but, what happened? What happened was that the Spirit of God, verse 2 took the work of Christ and applied it to the one who had faith in Jesus Christ. So the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in or through Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You were dead and now you have been brought to life by the Spirit through Jesus Christ. And 
And having been made alive, now we are controlled by Christ. So, so the one who is in Adam and he has a worldview, the one who is in the flesh has a worldview that says, I'm going to look at everything according to the power of the flesh. I'm going to look at everything in a fleshly way. Now the one who is in the spirit thinks about everything in a spiritual way. His The Spirit of God helps him to see the world the way God sees the world. Just as when he was in Adam, he was controlled by the power that was resident in his Adamic humanity. Now he is controlled by the power that is in his redeemed humanity, the Spirit of God. And and what happens is that he thinks the things of the Spirit. He sets his mind on the things of the Spirit. He is controlled by the things of the Spirit. He is empowered by the things of the Spirit. His worldview and his preoccupation are of the Spirit and the Spirit's work. And and frankly, he, he now has a new way to think. And so a verse like Romans 12, 2 finally makes sense. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How can a mind be made to think in new ways? Because the Spirit of God has come in and enabled you to think in new ways. And what we need to see in these verses is that there are only two types of people in this world. It is the kind of person... There's a kind of person that is controlled only by the flesh and there's a kind of person that is controlled only by the Spirit. Now, now the one who's controlled by the flesh, there may be levels of his rebellion against God, but if he is in the flesh, he is fully in the flesh. And the one who is in the Spirit, there may be levels of obedience to the Spirit, levels of maturity, Levels of delight, but if he is in the Spirit, he is in the Spirit. There are only those two categories. I I like the way John MacArthur says it. Every human being is completely in one spiritual state of being or the other. He either belongs to God or he does not. Just as a person cannot be partly dead and partly alive physically, neither can he be partly dead and partly alive spiritually. There is no middle ground. A person is either forgiven and in the kingdom of God or unforgiven and in the kingdom of the world. He is either a child of God or a child of Satan. And friends, we need to, we need to think of the world that way. Every single person you will see today is in one of those two realms. And they have only the destiny that those two realms can bring. If you are in the flesh, you have only the destiny of hell and God's judgment. And if you are in the spirit, you have only the destiny of heaven and Christ's blessing. There are no other options. The person that you will see sitting at the table next to you in the restaurant at lunch today? One of those two destinies. The checker at the grocery store or the hardware store? One of those two destinies. Your next door neighbor? One of those two destinies. The guy in the car in front of you that cuts you off? One of those two destinies. Everyone you see is in one of those two destinies. And friends, that that ought to compel us, shouldn't it? To see where people are. And give them the hope of glory. 
So the Spirit of God comes to live within us, and He gives us a new mindset, a new, a new way to think about the world, a new, a new perception, a new worldview. We also have, Paul says in verse 6, a new position. We have a new position. We needed a new position because, because we were dead. We were dead. Notice what he says. The mind set on the flesh is death. The one who has a fleshly mindset is already dead. Paul is not saying the one who has a fleshly mindset, the outcome of having that fleshly mindset is that he will die. Now that's true, but that's not what Paul is emphasizing here. Paul is emphasizing that when someone has a fleshly mindset, when their life is oriented around the flesh, they are dead. They are, as one writer said, spiritual corpses. Their, their thinking is dead, and the way they orient their life is dead, and they're dead in their relationship to God. There is no fellowship with God. There is no union with God. There is no relationship with God. There is no friendship with God. God is that person's enemy, and God has His wrath waiting for Him. Now, when I wrote that Friday morning, the first thing I began to type was this. God is his enemy, and God has only his wrath waiting for him. And as I was about to type that, I stopped, and I thought, is that true? Does God have only his wrath waiting for those who are in the flesh? That's not completely true. If there's no repentance, that is true. But, oh, friend, alongside God's wrath, For those who are dead, there is also grace, isn't there? There is grace that says, I have given a Savior that will pull you out of Adam and put you into Him so that you can be freed from sin and freed from the power of sin and freed from the penalty of sin. You can be liberated. So yes, unless there's repentance, then there is only wrath that awaits. But oh friend, it's not just wrath that awaits. There is hope that if we repent and if we turn to Him, that He will redeem us and He will save us. Oh friend, that ought to give you pause even as it did for me on Friday and give great gratitude to where your heart says, Thank you God, I was dead and now I am not. I deserved death, I deserved wrath, I deserved condemnation, and you have liberated and set me free. And notice that is the very thing that he does in verse 6. The mind set on the flesh is death, but there is something different for the mind set on the spirit, and that is it is life. We were dead, but now we are alive. And, and just as Paul said that that the mind set on the flesh is death, not just that it will result in death. In the same way, he is saying that the life of the one who, who has the Spirit of Christ is already life. It's not just that we will eventually one day get life. That's true, we will. But already, Paul says, you are alive. Already you are in the realm of life. Already you have been liberated. Just the multiple verses that we could turn to back in this book. This has been a repeated theme. Paul contrasting death and life, death and life, death and life. And in Christ we have life. 
But he says that perhaps best of all in chapter 6, verse 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. How can you walk in newness of life? Because, friend, you're alive. You're not dead anymore. And that's why he says... In verse 11 of that same chapter, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Account for the fact, reckon, live on the fact that you are already alive. We were under the sentence of death. Everything we did was dead. And now everything we have is under the promise of life and everything we do is empowered by the risen Christ. You've been transferred. You've been moved from death to life. A couple of years ago, uh, Regina and I went to Southern California for her aunt's funeral. And while we were down there, we, we uh, made our way through a town where both of us had lived a number of years ago. Um, Regina and I lived in the same town about a decade apart or a decade and a half apart. She lived there in the 70s and I lived there in the 80s. And, uh, and so we went back to this little town, which isn't a little town anymore, and, and we stumbled our way around and found both houses where we both lived 30, 40 years ago. And we sat outside and we took some pictures and reminisced and, and we got to Ray Jean's house and, and we got out and we stood at the fence in the front yard and we're looking into the yard and a homeowner came out. And we started talking to him and Ray Jean said, I lived in this house uh, a lot of years ago. And he said, would you like to see it? Well, yeah. So he took us into the backyard and he's shown us the property and things he's planted and, and things he's done in the yard and how things are looking now. And Ray Jean's mind is just going crazy, right? Just thinking about all of these things from the past and reminiscing. And, and he said, well, let me take you to the house. So he takes us into the back door and starts walking us through the house. And Ray Jean's mind is just flooded with memories. And walks us through every room. And Regine said, this was my bedroom. This is where I slept. And this is where my sister was. And wow, it looks a lot smaller than it did back then. And you know the, you know the, you know the drill, right? He walks us out the front porch. And we're standing out there. He's got an orange tree in the front yard. He even gives us some oranges off the tree. And it was just a kind of a sweet reminiscence of, of things in the past. But Regine doesn't live there anymore. It's not her house. She has a new house in a new place. And she can't go back to that house. She lived in that house at one time, but she has no more rights in that that house. That house does not belong to her. That house does not belong to her parents. Now, she can go back. She can visit it. She can look around. But she can't move into it. Because it belongs to someone else. It's not hers. And friend, if you are in Jesus Christ, that is similar to what has happened to you in your transfer from death to life. You can, you can, once you are alive, no more go back to being dead than the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ can be dead. You have been moved out of death and now you are in life and that is your new residence. You can, you can go back and look at it. You can go back and look and say, um, well, I used to do that kind of stuff. And, and you can occasionally dabble in it. And you can play in it. But friend, you can never be dead again if you are alive in 
Jesus Christ. You are, Paul says, and you have life. Not only is the mindset on the Spirit life, but also he says the life set on the Spirit is peace. Now this is, this is not subjective peace. He says we're at peace. This is not just subjective peace. This is not the peace that says, well, I'm feeling really peaceful today. I'm feeling good about my life and I'm content and I'm in a good place and, and God loves me. That's subjective peace. And that's not what Paul's talking about. He says you have peace. It is an objective peace. It is, it is the real state of our condition, whether we feel it or not. It goes back to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that we own. This is something we possess, whether we feel that we possess it in that moment or not. God has enacted a peace treaty with us and cannot be at war with us again. This is the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ. Have you ever had turbulent conflict with someone? Maybe Maybe just a really bitter argument with your spouse. Or maybe maybe you've had tremendous conflict with one of your children. Or a coworker or a neighbor. It's the kind of conflict that, that turns your stomach inside out. You just, you just think about it and you just, you, you physically ache. And, and you lay in bed at night and, and you can't go to sleep. Or, or when you do fall asleep, you, you wake up intermittently through the night and it's the first thing that goes running through your mind. And you're just heartbroken over this grief and this, this, this breaking of the relationship, and, and you're wondering, will this thing ever be fixed? And so you go to this individual, the relationship has been broken, you go to the individual and, and you confess your sin, you acknowledge how you've sinned against that person, and in a miraculous moment, they grant forgiveness. And, and that person from whom you were separated, now you're brought back together, and, and in joy you hug each other, You haven't done that in a long time. But now you embrace in love and and you sit down and you share a meal together and and you have camaraderie together. There's just this joy. We're at peace with one another. And then you go home and then you lay down in your bed. Have you ever had this happen? And you say, I wonder if it's going to last. I wonder if this will persist. Or I wonder wonder if we're going to have this problem again. And friend, if you are at peace with God, you cannot think that thought because you are eternally at peace. Our relationships here, they can be broken again, can't they? Lack of peace and war can intercede, but not so with God. If you are in Christ by the working of the Spirit, if your life is according to the Spirit of God, you are at peace. Oh, friend, that that ought to give you tremendous joy that Jesus Christ and God the Father can only be for you and He can only give you the soundness and the blessing that comes through Jesus Christ. We have a new mindset, Paul says. We have a new position, Paul says, verse 6. Because of the Spirit of God also, number three, he says, we have a new ability. We have a new ability. 
We have a new ability that relates to our inability prior to salvation. Notice he says, verse 7, because of the mind, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God prior to salvation, we were unable to obey God. Our, our ability previously was an inability. We were unable to obey God. And, and Paul denotes that when he says the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. The, the mind that is bent towards the flesh has the worldview of the flesh is hostile to God. And, and note that this is an active hostility. There's no neutrality in our relationship with God. Either, either someone loves God or someone hates Him. There's no, there's no middle, God, middle ground. And if someone is in the flesh, he is a hater of God. He wants to get rid of God. Now, some of you may say, well, well, it, it seems like that's not true, but let me play that out for you in just a moment. So just hang on to that thought and we'll get back to that. How is it that our, that, that the, that hostility from those who are in the flesh is manifested? He says, the mindset on the flesh, verse 7, is hostile toward God. What does it look like? Because, or for, it does not subject itself to the law of God. I said a moment ago, this hostility is purposeful. I get the purposefulness from this clause. He does not submit himself to the law of God. The implication is he, he, he should. The implication is that, that all men ought to subject themselves to God, but he will not do it. He will not place himself under the authority of God. He is purposefully and willfully rebellious against God. His rebellion and his hostility against God is not accidental and it is not unintentional. So one commentator says, determined to assert himself, to assert his independence, to be the center of his own life, to be his own God, he cannot help but hate the real God whose very existence gives the lie to his self-assertion. So he should, but he doesn't, and he won't. And notice the last clause in verse 7 For it, this mind that is set on the flesh, is not even able to do so. He can't. He can't. He not only won't, but he has no power in the flesh to submit himself to God, to be obedient to God. It is tempting to think about unredeemed people in two categories. It is tempting to think of unredeemed people and say... There are those who are blatantly rebellious against God and deserve His wrath. People like murderers and rapists and adulterers and blasphemers. These are the really worst of humanity and and the depth of depravity seems to know no bounds with them. They're the ones that really deserve God's wrath. And then there there are also unbelievers, but they're, they're really nice people. 
Like, like the checker at the grocery store who always smiles at you and has something of interest to say to you and knows about your family and asks after your family. Or, or the person who, who sees you have a flat tire and, and stops on the side of the road to help you change that flat tire. Or the neighbor who isn't a believer, but, but when you go on vacation, you leave your key with that person and they, they pick up your mail and pick up your newspaper and take it in the house and you have no worries that they're going to take anything out of your house. They, they seem to be completely trustworthy. They're moral and nice people. They're, they're good old boys who don't seem to deserve the wrath of God. Friend, everybody that lives by the flesh is in hostility against God. It is His nature to be in hostility against God because He is saying, even the nicest of people says, I don't need God. I'm fine on my own. As long as a person does not bend the knee to Jesus Christ, as long as a person does not Acknowledge the Lordship of Christ over his life. He is committing the greatest sin possible. He is not loving the Lord with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. And he is not believing the promise and provision of God through Christ and Christ's blood. He is a rejecter of Christ. And no matter what he does externally and superficially, No matter how nice he seems, his act of unbelief is massive hostility against God. He's unable to obey God, and he is rightly under God's condemnation. In contrast to that, Paul doesn't say it in verse 7, but the implication is this is the mindset on the flesh. It's hostility to God doesn't subject itself to God, and what's the implication? The one who is in the Spirit isn't hostile to God, is a friend to God, and is submissive to God in placing himself under the authority of God and following after him. We are now friends, able to obey God. In fact, this is is the very thing he talked about in verse 4, isn't it? So that now, because we have the Spirit of God, because we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, now we can do some of the things that God has commanded us to do. We can fulfill the law, not perfectly, not for our salvation, but but we can do some of the things that God demands us to do, progressively growing in our sanctification. Now, there's a fourth way that the Spirit transforms believers. It's given to us in verse 8, and that is we have a new desire. We have a new desire. There was a time when when we needed our desire to change, and he identifies that in verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You notice a subtle change that Paul makes in verse 8? In verse 5, 6, and 7, he, all talk, he talks in all those verses about, about the mindset of the flesh and how the mind that is according to the flesh is against God. But now in verse 8, he doesn't just say it's the mind, but he says those who are in Christ. It's not just the mind. It is, it is their entire being. Everything about them doesn't desire to please God. And this is the worst part of the believer's, unbeliever's life. He cannot produce a righteousness 
on his own, and he cannot do anything pleasurable to God. In fact, everything the one who is in the flesh does is displeasurable to God. God looks at everything he does with disdain and judgment. Now, we've had, we've had a, a massive storm on the East Coast, right? And, and perhaps you've already seen some of, the, some of the organizations that are trying to raise money to go in and help in that situation so that they can bring food and clothing and, and help restore buildings and, and get people back in a, in a livable condition again. And, and all kinds of money is pouring in. And there are going to be people, unbelievers, who give tens of dollars and hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars and, and maybe tens of thousands of dollars. And there are going to be people who go to the Carolinas and they're going to, they're going to invest their time and they're going to invest their resources and, and they're going to sweat and they're going to labor and they're going to haul trash and they're going to, they're going to build to help and minister to serve people. And there are going to be lots of unbelievers doing that. And there are going to be lots of unbelievers who in that moment are going to weep with those who are suffering and, and they're going to come alongside and, and give a hug and give a word of encouragement. And God looks at all of those actions of an unbeliever and says, that does not please me. Why? Why does God find that displeasurable? Because it is done to the exclusion of God. It is man, in a sense, shaking his fist at God and saying, I can be good without you. And God says, no, the only way you can be good is with me. And you must receive Christ as my Savior in order to please me. You cannot please God on your own. Says one commentator, to be wholly involved in this life is to make it impossible to please God. Is that you this morning? Are you trying to please God without Jesus Christ? Is your mindset, the way you're oriented around the world, is really to the world? Are, are Are you rejecting the way God thinks about the world? Are are you still enslaved to sin, dead in your sin, dead in your relationship with God? Friend, the only thing you can do is the one thing you must do, and that is turn to Christ for your salvation. You must confess your hostility to God. You must submit to Him and His Lordship and His authority. And you begin that journey by trusting only in Christ for your salvation. And asking Him to change you and asking Him to work through you so that you can live for His glory. You're not earning His salvation, but you're living out the salvation that He grants you. And friend, if you are not pleasing to God, the only way that you will ever become pleasing to God is to take on Jesus Christ and have the pleasure that God finds in Jesus Christ poured out over your life. And when you trust Him, That's the very thing that happens. And so one of the things that that is the result of that is where previously we did not have a desire to please God, now, he says, we do have a desire to please God. We, We in the flesh can't please God, but now in the Spirit the implication is we can please God. 
This is the way Jesus Christ Himself lived. John chapter 8, Jesus says, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Galatians chapter 1, Paul says about himself, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were trying to please men, I could not be a slave of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul again writes, As we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Oh, friend, if you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, you have a new ability to please God, and He will find pleasure in you, not because of you, but because of Christ who has saved you and the Spirit of Christ who resides within you. It may be that on occasion you have told someone that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you're, you're a Christian. And it may be that that person has said, well, well, what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And maybe you've paused in that moment and thought, oh, how do I explain this without giving, you know, this long message? Well, to be a Christian means to be forgiven by Christ. And it means... To follow after Christ because He has forgiven us. And in the forgiveness that He grants us, He gives us something. He gives us the Spirit of God to reside within us. And the Spirit of God residing within us works certain things through us. And that's what Paul has identified in this passage. In a sense, Paul's given us a picture of what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has been forgiven by Christ, who has a new mindset. A Christian is someone who has been forgiven by Christ, who has a new position. A Christian is someone who has been forgiven by Christ, who has a new ability to walk with Christ and be obedient to Christ. And a Christian is someone who has been forgiven by Christ, who has a new desire to be pleasing to Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the message that we tell the world that doesn't believe. And friend, this is, this is not just the message we carry to the world. This is the message we remind to our, ourselves of, of when we are in Christ, this is who we are. And this is what God has granted to us. We are sure of that work of His in us and through us. Oh, our Father, we thank You for this passage Thank you for the Spirit of God who is working in us and through us and the Spirit of God who has been granted to us. We thank you for the freedom that the Spirit of God gives us from the flesh. We were in the flesh. We were condemned and under death. We were unable to please you. We did not desire you. And Father, all those things have changed radically. This is the work of the Spirit of God. And we thank you. We thank you for what you have done for us that we could not do ourselves. Give us this morning great rest and great joy in the truth of what the Spirit of God has produced and is producing in us. We pray in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen.